Welcome to the Filament Games Podcast, a show dedicated to game-based learning. Here are your hosts, Brandon Pitzer and Dan Norton. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Filament Games Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brandon Pitzer. I do the marketing at Filament Games. That's right. And I'm Dan Norton, Chief Creative Officer of Filament. That's right. So today uh, we are going to be uh, reviving an old series that we had done on the podcast previously with Matt Hazelton. May he rest in peace wherever he is in the world, still alive, but still rest in peace because um, he's dead to us, obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, fortunately, we have uh, Lydia with us today, again, rejoining us on the podcast. Uh, hello, Lydia. Hello. And we're going to go through... Um, Jumpstart Adventures, third grade Mystery Mountain with Lydia. Uh, but before we do that, um, we're just going to talk a little bit about what we're playing these days. Kind of kick off the the podcast casually. So, Dan, what are you working on or playing on these days? What do you, what game are you playing? You know what? I got a little spin on it for today, Brandon. I want to actually talk a little bit about what I'm not playing. Okay, I'm here yeah. to lay to rest one of my most favorite games of all time, Sea of Thieves. Wow. Okay. So I successfully avoided being recruited into Sea of Thieves for the entire time that you were enjoying it. And now that's over. So I missed out. That's, uh, you did. You really did miss out. It's a beautiful game, uh, just aesthetically. The design is immaculate, it's bold. Uh, it's a game that has thoughts about what makes a game good that are challenging and interesting. Um, and its blend of open world PvP with PvE is kind of my jam. Uh, unfortunately, my game's been out for years now, and I think just the level of sweatiness has now exceeded my skill level. Like the, mm-hmm. the user base has concentrated into ever more skilled murder squads. Yep. Um, at this point, like I and my partner, like last two times we played, we just got loot and then we're just absolutely dismantled. Uh, I'm not sure if the other teams are cheating. I know that there's cheats that now exist, but I see. from my perspective, it's actually just not relevant. It's either cheat cheating or sweatiness that I can't overcome. Either way, you're being dominated at a level that is it's no longer leisure time at that point. Have, we have we have there's no escape. They do not miss. They, they, yeah, there is no, there, yeah, we have no recourse. Here we are. So yeah, I have to, awesome. yeah. Yeah, so I'm retiring. It all makes right. me sad. I, I, I still think it's one of the best games ever played of all time. I love my time with it, but uh, the. You're sending the fact, it down to J- Davy Jones' locker, basically. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. So that's that's what I'm not playing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I I mean I've I've had a similar trajectory with uh, I, I'd say most online online games kind of go in that direction eventually. You know, that it gets to a point where it's like unplayably sweaty. Um, for my part, I was dabbling a little bit just because uh, uh, my brother and his fiance were doing this. Um, was playing a little bit of uh, the Wrath of the Lich King classic. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And it's got the same exact problem. It makes it, I mean, borderline unplayable. You can't even 
you can't get a group unless you're like max raid gear from the previous expansion and stuff. It's uh, yeah, these communities are sort of it. It's interesting to watch these communities kind of wring all but the worst elements out of themselves. <laughs> it's kind of the online community trajectory I found. Yeah, it's like <laughs> with an MMO, there's also a multiplier, right? Because time. There is some kind of roughly straight time to gear ratio, so you just get mathematically more powerful. Yep. Sea of Thieves, there is no better gear. Every every the gun you have on day one is just as good as the gun you have at the last day. But you do get skill. So it's basically pure skill ceiling at this point, is what you're telling me. Yeah. And yeah, and like I said, I, I can't really comment whether or not it's aim bots or not but mm-hmm. the, the i am outskilled currently just by the same similar to what happens at mmos but not compounded by math yeah i mean that that's another really interesting element of online gaming right now is the uh proliferation of cheats and uh the seeming inability of the industry to keep up with policing those cheats there are a number of games that um, you know, take Grand Theft Auto Online, for example, like the publisher has essentially just capitulated, like the the online community is just run by the cheaters. Like it's to the extent where when you're in a public lobby of that game, another player can actually just crash you to desktop at their will, like whenever they want. <laughs> um, and that that is a level of um, of lawlessness that I've never seen in a video yeah. game at all. Yeah. Um, and of course the game is basically built around lawlessness. So it's like, it's sort of, <laughs> it's like the nature of the game draws that kind of personality into it. Um, yes. But yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. The, how rapidly they can iterate on these hacks and just, you know, find endless points of vulnerability. Um, and you, you know, look no further than the, the 17 year old lad who's under arrest right now in the UK for having hacked all the way into the heart of both Uber and rockstar in the oh, space. Yeah. Week. And the yeah. reason, they, and the reason they've got him is because of bail violation. Cause he's done this before with other, <laughs> other major companies. <laughs> it's just like, he's an industrious person. Um, yeah. uh, but all right. Uh, so, um, I do want to ask Lydia as well though. Um, what are you playing these days? Yeah, so I recently played through Chicory, A Colorful Tale. Um, I mentioned to my fiance that I wanted to do like a, a, a book club, especially since there's so many small indie games out there that don't take a lot of time, but I really want to play and then I don't get around to it. Um, and a podcast that they listen to, Triple Click, has a game club. And the first, I joined right before they voted, and they voted for Chicory last month. At the moment, it's Into the Breach, which I'm not, I'm going to just go back to FTL because I have a working mouse because my I can't handle Into the Breach right now. But Chicory <laughs> was wonderful. It was very br- pretty and just such a good game. I played it on the Switch um, so I essentially with like left hand walking and then using my finger to paint. Mm, um, okay. but it was really, I, I just thought that the NPCs in the world building was just so charming. It's a very, the bosses were surprisingly hard, but it was nice because you could, you, there were a level of accessibility issues. You could even skip the bosses if you want, because that's the only time there ever was combat. And I don't think I, I've ever related to a main character or a playable character more than your 
named dog that you play as. Um, it's It was very interesting in terms of exploring the... I, exploring uh imposter syndrome and creative burnout and the you know uh looking and and a creative passion or lack thereof from both sides of the coin both from someone who you know from the perspective of someone who knows what they want to do from day one and goes and does it and then now what or the person who doesn't know what they're doing <laughs> mm-hmm really good and it's one of those games where you can finish the game in like eight to ten hours or you can spend over 30 hours on it and both are completely utterly valid ways to play and you can still continue it's it's not like if you don't do the side quest before the end of the game you're never going to be able you're not going to be allowed to do them again totally fine if you want to just burn through the first eight hours and then spend the rest of the time doing what you missed so how would you compare it to like kind of other games you have played? Um, you know, I know I see that it's it's kind of like an adventure game style. Um, I'm seeing some comparisons to like Zelda. Um, mm-hmm. And I do I did see that uh, this was created by the developers of Wandersong and uh, Celeste. Um, mm-hmm. Celeste. Celeste being a brutally difficult uh, <laughs> platformer. Um, so it's really interesting to me that they went this route of a kind of a non-combat uh, more casual experience. Would you say like kind of, I guess, yeah, the two questions there is, uh, you know, how does it compare to other games and like, you know, is it as challenging as Celeste or is it like more of a casual experience? Definitely more of a casual experience than Celeste mechanically. Um, so Celeste is a game I have not played it. My partner has, um, it, it is a game where suddenly three quarters of the way through, you realize you've become a speed runner essentially is how that works um the way that they build up the mechanics and and demand a mastery of them for uh from the player i would say that it is in theme and consideration it is very similar to celeste um i think with long periods of uh you as the player going through the platform elements or going through the puzzles and then the plot moments being uh deeply introspective both for the characters you're uh working with and or or playing with um and also for you yourself the npc is also lovely but in terms of mechanics i would say that it is more um it is more uh, casual and accessible in that way. There's some platforming elements. Uh, there's some um, there's some puzzles with different using the mechanic of of the paintbrush that you have, um, and uh, there are. Uh, I would say that it is similar in to Zelda in the sense that there are as you're going through the world, you will notice things that you cannot quite reach. And you know that you can't quite get there, but it looks like something you could get to eventually. Mm. It does a very good job of signaling those. So that way, as you you go farther into the game, you can return back to them or you can find them again from a different angle and realize, oh, wait a second, now I know why I couldn't reach that because I can now. So it has very, it's a very good job with level design in that respect. Um, I guess the only thing that it would be, that is a little bit of a challenge is because it is set in a world devoid of color. 
the it's a little hard to tell which levels are at what level. Um, I have that same trouble with like foreground, background, height uh, when I see things like Terraria. Um, that's why I don't play Terraria actually. But so it, it is a bit of a disadvantage in some ways. But the fact that you have the power to color things and you can color code them once you figure it out, that definitely you can like self you can make that more accessible and easier to see visually by yourself, which is nice. That's really cool. I think I, I, uh, I played a VR game that was something like that, where it, the, the world sort of starts black and white and you color it in as you go. And that, um, that's a very simple and satisfying mechanic <laughs> to mark your progress for sure. Um, there's something very fundamental about that. And I know you had mentioned kind of in our previous discussions that the, um, there's a bit of a star-studded uh, audio team on this. I know you had mentioned uh, Lena Rain uh, did the original soundtrack. She also did work on Celeste and Minecraft. Um, I also noticed that uh, M. Halberstadt um, uh, worked uh, on the audio design of the game, um, and they were also on the game uh, Untitled Goose Game. Oh, really? Uh, ah. so I just composer. I did not know that the audio design was also pretty, pretty well-known and star-studded. Yeah, this is it's kind of like one of those uh, indie supergroups out of Canada in the 2000s. You know, it's like one of those um, where all the cool indies got together and made an even cooler indie thing. <laughs> Amazing. Um, all right. Well, thank you for that. That's a, I'm actually going to have to check that game out. That looks really cool to me. Um, so uh, let's see. Jumping into the to the. Uh, the substance of today's podcast, the uh, the interview about Jumpstart Games. So. Um, a, just a quick introduction to Jumpstart Games and who they, well, are slash were. Um, so Jumpstart is uh, one of the more storied learning game brands, I would say, in the U.S. Um, they started um, in the 90s uh, with Jumpstart Kindergarten. This was created by uh, an indie studio at the time named Fanfare Software, which was founded in 1988. Um, and then uh, that game was eventually published by Knowledge Adventure, which is obviously a very well-known name in the games and learning space as well. Um, Fanfare went on to develop a couple more games in that series, uh, namely Jumpstart Preschool and Jumpstart First Grade. And then they were ultimately acquired by Knowledge Adventure in 1995. So starting in 1995, Fanfare was no more and Jumpstart uh, belonged fully to Knowledge Adventure, not just published, but also developed and owned by. Uh, this was followed soon after by Jumpstart Second Grade and Jumpstart Adventure's third grade, Mystery Mountain, which will be the star of today's podcast, the co-star, if you will. Um, those were released in 1996, and then they uh, continued releasing more uh, and higher grade games after that, so fourth grade, fifth grade, and onward. Um from there, in 1997, Knowledge Adventure was acquired by CUC International. And I thought this was a really interesting point. Um, it became a wholly owned subsidiary of COC, uh, alongside with Davidson and Associates, Sierra Online, and Blizzard Entertainment. Hmm. So at one point, uh, the company that owned uh, Blizzard and what they were doing in the 90s also owned Knowledge Adventure and all these games, and also the Sierra Online Adventure games, King's Quest, Torrens Passage, if you're a hipster like me, um, and uh, that kind of stuff. Um, so CUC went on to be the label that marketed those Jumpstart games. 
Um, and they premiered a number of those games at the 1997 E3, the Electronic, Electronic Entertainment Expo, um, which has uh, since become significantly less prominent um, than a number of other <laughs> conferences that have kind of taken their place. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, at that show, they uh, debuted Jumpstart Typing, Jumpstart Spanish, Jumpstart Kindergarten 2, first grade reading, first grade math, second grade math, and fifth grade, all in 97. Um, from there, I'm going to hit the fast forward button. Knowledge Adventure spent the next 20 years <laughs> diversifying uh, their catalog, adding more games, uh, getting into browser games, um, kind of launching the first viable browser game in the early 2000s, uh, uh, getting into mobile games and even some console games. And this continued until 2017 when they were acquired by NetDragon Websoft. Uh, which what? Is yes. yes Wait, say that again? NetDragon Websoft. Um, NetDragon. Net, net yeah, it's a Chinese uh, publisher. Uh, and they also own Edmodo and Promethean Limited, if you're familiar with Promethean, creator of uh, those gigantic... Um, smart boards uh one of the main providers of those oh, so wow. i can say the gigantic round spaceships that crash from the sky and chase <laughs> yeah different different That's thing different yes. film yeah. Yeah. um yeah different different realm i would say <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah so um there you are a brief history of knowledge adventure and jumpstart and the uh wonderful and interesting series of acquisitions that that <laughs> that ip has experienced um not unlike my student loan debt <clears throat> anyways moving on um <laughs> to uh the actual main discussion um like i said we're going to focus today on jumpstart third grade mystery mountain so um my first question for lydia is um why are we choosing this game uh for the podcast today what's the meaning that it has to you personally i know that's a bit of a curveball it's not on my list of questions but it occurs to me i should start there yeah, it's a good one because in part, I played a lot of these educational games for PC growing up. I mean, everything, uh, multiple Jumpstart games, Reader Rabbit, Addy Boo, all sorts of stuff. And so why this one? And really, it is the one that stands out to me the most because it's the first game I ever 100%ed. I completed the entire game. Um Achievement unlocked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is now um, a matter of public record. Everyone knows now. <laughs> yeah. It I I mean, I'm not a completionist. Uh as a as a player, I I will go for as much uh as I care. And if it's gonna frustrate me, I usually abandon it. But this was one of the first uh, or it's the one that I can I remember the most as really working hard to finish it. Um the premise of the game is that you are um, assisting a robot named Botley who was tasked to babysit a evil inventor's daughter named Polly. And she is causing mayhem because while her father's out on an inventor conference, she had a history test and she decided... Well, she claims she decided to get every answer wrong on purpose, but she probably didn't study. And she was so mad that she sent all of her father's robots, except for Botley and a few others, into the past to change history so they would match her answers that she gave. Uh, that I would do. So 
they're really ridiculous answers too. Um, <laughs> it's so, a great scheme, honestly. Yeah. I love the plot. I do. And the entire time she's locked up in her father's office, essentially the control room for this whole building or like laboratory home inside of a volcano. And so she's just coming down with uh, TV screens messing with you and Botley the entire time you're playing the game. And yeah, I rescued all of those robots. <laughs> all right so uh the, so the real reason that you you just really wanted to get that off your chest and so everyone now in the world knows um that this accomplishment no i'm just kidding um <laughs> so, i mean obviously that was a very uh formative experience um you know one thing i'm curious about in, in terms of just like the learning objectives of the game i assume that they're historical in nature based on the fact that we're we're going back and we're tampering with historical vignettes but is that like kind of what is the game kind of designed to teach you? Like, what do you walk away with knowledge wise? So jumpstart third grade. And I think this is kind of a good rule of thumb for all the jumpstart games is if it is just a grade, it's meant to be a holistic primer or extra jumpstart to the entire curriculum you would be expected to have in third grade. Oh, so unless sure, it's that something makes sense. specific like reading, um, it is meant to be the entire curriculum. So, uh, while and I think actually it does it really well. Um, so while the premise is based in history, and that's definitely um, how that's based in the final mini game um, before, like the final task you have to complete before you co can actually successfully retrieve the robot. In order to get to that point you have to play a lot of mini games that cover everything from music to uh units of measurement there's art history math uh reading um biology code like really simple logic like coding logic as well as uh ast astronomy kind of cultural stuff and uh so you really do get a, a primer on every um everything so, um, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, being, being that it is, it, it, I mean, I didn't realize that there were, um, there's like kind of the, the holistic cross cutting version of jumpstart. And then there's like the more like domain specific versions. Of mm -hmm. course, that makes sense. Now looking back at the list of titles that I had, uh, rattled off at the start of the podcast. Um, so can you give an example of like, you know, what's, if you recall any specific challenges where you were kind of drawing on multiple domains of knowledge? Yeah, um, I, so one of them, uh, the one that I really want to talk about is that final mini game. but I will say that there, uh, as an example for one of the mini games, uh, in order to do it, you first had to, to organize a sentence to be grammatically correct, and then you had to follow that sentence and find the correct, um, uh, uh, what's it called? Oh, gosh, what's it called? Um, oh, you had to unscramble a sentence so it was correct, and it would tell the story of a constellation. And you had to, once you unscrambled those sentences practicing English, you then had to use those to figure out which constellation one of the clues was hidden in. So, for example, like, you know, would say, I am a hunter. Um I fight like I hunt with a bow and arrow. And so um, you then have to think, OK, well, it's probably Orion. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the, that is one of the mini games examples, um, which is Got pretty it. limited. But at the end, uh, right before you are able to retrieve um, the robot, you have to go to the Wheel of Invention, <laughs> which was originally a mechanic that the professor had put in so that way no one could use the time machine without a, you know explicit clearance. But Polly also messed with that to make it a game show. The whole conceit of why you have to find the of of why you're playing all these other mini games is that Polly's hidden four clues as to where the robot got sent. Uh, essentially, the who, the when, the what, and the where. And um, once you find those clues, you go to the Wheel of Invention. You put the clues in, and you have to go through a series of trivia questions that could be that are history culture um but also could be sometimes math um related to then figure out those questions and so like how does that kind of um give you a reason to go out and you know experience the gameplay loop and and dig into like the overall arc of the game um i think that it really it gives you a very strong narrative reason for having to play games to collect objects. It's I think that it would have been a very easy thing. And I think a lot of people, when they think of games or, uh, you know, just getting kids to go do the thing over and over again, they think, okay, well, you go and play and you get money and then you can buy something and that's it. But really, instead of you having to collect a unit you have to collect a specific thing because that in itself is a unique key for the unique problem, for the unique situation that you're in. Um, and I think that that makes it feel a lot more meaningful. Um, it's also you only have four per robot. And so it could be any one of those mini games. You have to go from floor to floor to get a sense to f- try and find which one it is. And Botley helps you with that. But it makes it feel less grindy in because you're not just trying to get something you're trying to find the thing that will get this robot sure and it's also i think interesting because you go through the entire history test with four no with five rope five options at a time they're like these floppy disks that you can put into this (laughs) <laughs> uh, thing and and every floppy disk has five where you so you five robots per disk and the each disk increases in difficulty but you can choose in what order you want to rescue the robots there so which robot do you want to try and save from that floppy disk and then you move on to the next one it these little things they make the actions of the player feel a little bit more valuable even though you're still doing the same core game loop of play four minigames, get the clues, go to the Wheel of Invention, get the robot, repeat. Got it. Got it. So, you know, in terms of, it's a nice segue that you mentioned uh, floppy disks, because I'm interested in terms of like your opinion on, you know, how old school would you say this game is um, in its, in its design and its sensibilities? Like, do you think there's any of it that you would say is like a little bit dated now? Um, anything that you would like change to make it a little bit more modern? Well, I will say that um, when I mentioned that the Wheel of Invention sometimes uses math, it a one time set up a word problem where it's like, uh, you know, this thing happened 
uh, two decades ago. When did it happen? And um, it at the time had put in a date like 2015 that was obviously in the future at the time, not as much. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Sure>. um, <laughs> so a very, it's, it's quite literally dated in that, res- <laughs> in that regard. <laughs> that is one thing I did find when I was looking up the game uh, a few a year ago. I think that it, it it is very of its time in the sense that it was very much the it was very much the idea of we are going to have the kids do a lot of little missions to a greater goal. And I think in some cases that's also kind of like Zelda in a way where okay, you have a bunch of different temples and they're all kind of themed in different ways. And then you have to keep doing, you have to go get this gem. You have to go this, get this thing, get this thing all to the service of a greater plot. True, true. And, There's always the phase one, three things and the phase two, seven things to collect in basically any Zelda game. <laughs> I would love to see someone write every, like every hero's to-do list and have you try to match which one it is because it's <laughs> so long for Link. Um, I think it it's very much a an, an, a thing of its time in that way. I think it's brilliant in how it uses narrative justification for why the tasks they ask you to do are there. Like um you know every single room is either a living quarters for Polly her dad and the robots or a different area for what the professor does his experiments on like mm-hmm. there's an entire biome like multiple biome ecosystem greenhouse thing that you have to send a robot through because it's a contained environment that's a perfect justification for having to learn some life science and botany and stuff sure I think that it's brilliant in that way. I do think, though, that it's it's dated and and sadly so in that I think a lot of times when people want to find educational games, they go more for um, speedy apps. As opposed to a long adventure, they want like a tight game loop that is repeatable in the way that, you know, the, the joke we have is, can you make it like Fortnite? I hear kids like the Fortnite. <laughs> and or and that's also, I think, what, where things like Duolingo come into, where they're small game loops, they're short, you can pop them open, you can play it, and then you can put it away. Sure. It's, yeah. it's a little I, I, shame um, in, my, in my perspective, but also it, I realize I come from a very hefty place of nostalgia, so I'm actually a little curious what you all think about that, hearing it from me. Yeah, I think a lot of, especially something like Duolingo, like uh, from a filamenty perspective, I would see a strategy like that is that we're just anticipating that the player is coming in with more of an extrinsic motivator out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Like you play Duolingo because you want to learn a language and that that goal of being like, I would like to learn more language sooner is actually higher priority than I need more intrinsic motivators built into the structure to make it more uh, sticky and make me want to stay inside it more. So mm-hmm. in a, even in a game like Duolingo, right, they're still like, well, how much do we show you with a friendly owl? How much do we tell you great job for showing up again? Right. So they're still thinking about what are the tools to like 
serve a smooth engagement cycle, but they're just banking on a higher level of planned extrinsic motivation around yeah. uh, getting in there, uh, which, you know, I think it's fair. I think it's totally fair, depending on, on the product you're making. Yeah, I think also they're relying, I think a lot of times people think and want and rely on a similar I mean, some what the type of model of game that you would expect to find on a tablet or a phone, which is changing. Like you can play Stardew Valley or uh, Terraria or Minecraft on a tablet just fine, but a lot of times it's that that quicker, that shorter, that faster, like um, very short, juicy, and potent moment of gameplay that can be repeated a lot. And that's of the kind of the opposite perspective, whereas for or and, and in some cases that's necessary if they want to be able to play a game in the classroom together within a class period and have everybody get a turn. That's not this is not at all the ideal uh, format for that style of game. And I think that that is a valid thing. Right. Um, but I really do like how attached you become to the subject matter to the point where I remember thinking, uh, I really wanted to play this particular mini game. And what was actually nice is that you could replay the mini games even if you weren't, even if there was no clue to find. You were still allowed to. And I oftentimes did. Hmm. That's interesting. It, I like that they give you your own avenue towards, you know, experiencing the game or you know playing with it regardless of like the goal or outcome that the game is imposing on you and i think i think you raise a great point which is that um you know these games were i think they were designed with the home environment in mind you know mm -hmm. bearing you know assuming you know jumpstart was something that people were doing before they enrolled um in a you know i think by design that was kind of the intention at least um although obviously these games were used in classrooms as well um, I do think that the longer form games with more complex narrative, um, more, you know, Byzantine to-do lists, um, they uh, exist in tension with the extremely high churn uh, timing of a classroom, you know, because I know, you know, for when you're a kid, uh, the 15 or 30 minute class period feels like an eternity, but um, it, it really is nothing, you know, mm -hmm. Um and sometimes, you know, teachers are running up against technical issues with just getting kids set up in the games. And then by the time they've got all these kids at a desk and signed on and engaged in level one, you know, the bell rings. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think this this kind of game, this longer form design paradigm is a much better fit for a home environment um, or an informal learning environment than a place where, you know, we're marching to a pretty tight schedule of class periods and that kind of thing. Yeah, you bring up something interesting, though. I mean, the idea of Jumpstart was that you would play, I think I'm assuming you would play it before you started the grade or in conjunction yeah. with the grade you were in. And I want to know if anyone else did this. I played the games well after I was in the grade that they were targeting. And I would mm -hmm. replay the games well after. Mm -hmm. I think some of it might have been because I had a little brother who was young, like three years younger than me. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty sure that I finished Jumpstart third grade in fifth grade. I think it might have been that I did, that was when I completed the entire game. And Interesting. to some extent, I imagine it was because I had more patience because <laughs> sure. I was never a patient child ever. And fifth grade, two years of patience probably helped a lot. <laughs> but 
it was also because I loved the game. And there were levels of difficulty that you could set the game to, easy, medium, hard. So sometimes, depending on the level that you were playing and how and what subject it was, they could get really hard. I have to ask, Lydia, for full completion, hardest difficulty. Mm-hmm. Confetti on the screen? Special gold trophy lowered from the top or Ooh. anything happen? What was I the mean- feedback? There's like there's no platinum god award for getting it like full like uh uh hardcore mode. I could tell you <laughs> the end of what happens when you it's find all the robots if you want. Spoil. Oh, I, I'm just more interested whether the game had any mechanics that were like you must come back and try this at the hardest difficulty and 100% it. Oh heavens no. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Well, that's disappointing. We need to get NetDragon Websoft on the phone. Yeah, NetDragon, yeah, if you're out there, NetDragon Websoft. <laughs> no, don't change a thing. I love it. Uh, all right, never mind. Cool. Yeah. Lydia wants Lydia wants the time capsule, so we're going to keep it as it is. Okay, um, maybe change the art history game because it was a little boring. You didn't see it very much. And update that one multiple choice to get rid of the 2015 option and make it more ludicrous. We need an update on that as well. That's true. Yep. All right. So, I mean, you know, one, as you were saying, you know, you played it for two years. You're wondering if other people did that. You're wondering why. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, well, Lydia, you know, you, you make EDU games now with your life. Uh, yeah. you, this may just be who you are <laughs> as a person. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, but to that end, I am curious, you know, how does this game um, in particular or any of the games that you played, you know, way back when, how do they influence the way that you design these kinds of games today? It is very much a touchstone it, for me in ways that, of of like where to tie things together and where to find joy. What I mean by that is I I think very much I've always been a narratively driven person. But with Jumpstart, what I really with Jumpstart third grade, what I really loved was how they were able to tie everything into a believable reason for it being there. And Quite frankly, it is human psychology that if you have a why for something, you're more likely to do it. <laughs> They've mm. actually done experiments in the 70s of people asking for a seat on a bus and they will give and even if it, they give answers or reasons why that are nonsensical like I have le- because I have legs people will still be more likely to get up and give them a seat. <laughs> that's actually that's amazing knowledge. I'm going to try that next time on a bus. <laughs> Excuse me, my legs are legs. Can you move? Yeah. I <laughs> I think that that is so beautiful because a lot of times, especially when you have disparate subjects, you have disparate goals, as long as those goals don't conflict, if you can find a way and a reason why they exist in tandem, that strengthens the whole game in general. So that could mean, oh, hey, we have this theme uh, and this is what we need to do. Um in order to and this is how we can tie it into that theme 
Um, but I really loved how they couched all of the mini games and gave a reason for them being there. I mean, really, anytime you entered a new room, the first thing that Botley does is introduce the room that you're in and say what it's used for. Mm. I think that that is very powerful in setting premise and also setting reason for doing any what the task you're then asked um but it also it, it's it's really developed into i think my oh hello <laughs> i'm sorry my cat just got in here hello these are the hazards of podcasting <laughs> on the floor you know you're at you're in you're in the cat's world <laughs> right. basically you're in their studio yeah. um you merely adopted the floor. I was bored. <laughs> I was molded by it. Uh, <laughs> my, uh, what I will often kind of the pattern that I go through with um, when I'm problem solving or when I'm trying to figure out how we fit something in or how we justify something to the player um, and give them motivation to do it. I think how do I like what design pillar what objective is it reinforcing and then how do i narratively justify this in the world why does it exist it's it's sometimes it takes the guise of essentially me finding the <laughs> the narrative catch-all caveat of like oh yeah it's because it's because of this but a lot of times for me that solidifies the um the reason why a solution should be done um in the way it is i can't uh i feel like i've I've not explained that well no i think i think you have to me mm -hmm. it sounds like what you're saying is kind of like they provide like an internally consistent logic mm -hmm. and uh narrative explanation right to, yeah. to what they're doing and um you know i think that resonates with me in terms of like uh, really that the game is basically making a canon for itself within the scope of the one game right but mm -hmm. um you know, in any fandom, you have people who are like, well, you know, th that's not logically consistent with this previous event within this fictitious universe. You know, they're not drawing on external logic or like real logic to make these arguments that something's not canonically consistent. Um, but I think it really matters to people that, you know, when they're engaging with a fiction that it is an internally consistent fiction that allows them to have the have a pleasant willful suspension of disbelief um and i think it does go back to what you're saying about like the human need for agency and mm -hmm. that that questioning of you know well why <laughs> that is <laughs> you know that's core to the human mind uh it's basically the first question yeah. <laughs> that any that any person has um to some extent i wonder if the reason like kind of the reason why that's so satisfying is because figuring out the rules of a situation is exhausting. I think, you know, you walk into a new room or a new friend group and you're trying to figure out what's the dynamic, what is the vibe, how do be these people talk to each other, what do you talk about? That is exhausting to do. It's a lot of work. But once you know intuitively, okay, here's the rules of the situation, you slide in, you can think about all everything else. I wonder if is, things like that also work with comedy, for instance, you know, what's the what's the weird rules of this world or in sci fi, you know, what are the yes. rules of this world now? Okay, we know the rules. Now let's focus on the point. 
Yep. And I wonder if in if part of why I latch onto that is because that establishing that consistency then means that I can guarantee that the player's mind is not trying to figure out the game, but is actually playing the game. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. I mean, I think to me, it's like, um, it, it, I think it diminishes the mental burden, you know, that it puts on you of having to map the entirety of the space for yourself. It's basically like giving you a path through the fiction. Yeah. I, that is understandable. Also, the slightly more cynical reason is goes to the old uh, <laughs> educational joke of why do we need to learn calculus? I'm never going to use math ever again. Or, you know, explicitly saying, hey, Mr. Something, I've never used algebra. It's like, okay, cool. But someone did. There's that idea or that woe in education when you have to learn something just because you have to learn it. That isn't fun. <laughs> that yes. sucks. And it makes it feel so much more like labor than an opportunity or a way to look at something a different way or learn a new skill that could be, uh, or a tool really, that could be used elsewhere. And I wonder, and I think that's where I find the reason why I find player agency not necessarily in what can the player do, but why are we having the player do what they do? Because if anything that does not have a reason for it is just work. If it's just for survival, it's just work. But if there's reason to take pleasure in it, and sometimes, and, and also if I am not banking on somebody taking pleasure in it because it's the kind of thing that they do anyway, having a, an explicit reason why for the player to do something in an educational game and then having them engage with the skills as they're fulfilling that why is, um, I think for me, it feels a lot more comfortable as a designer that maybe they're not going to get as much out of it as someone who is fully in enriched by the activity itself. But I can guarantee that they will engage with it maybe without thinking, why am I doing this? This is, this is, this, I'm just, do, why am I doing this? Why am I spending my time on this thing? It's because I have to. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's giving them kind of a, an avenue towards developing a level of intrinsic motivation about it by sparking their interest. Yeah. yeah. I do think uh, it's challenging for me because I do think even in the realm of commercial games, there's all huge swaths of games that when I look at them, they look absolutely like the last thing I'd want to spend my time on. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, there are other people who are incredibly passionate about those those models of play and mastery. And then, you know, like, I like games that have spreadsheets in them. Uh, and I, I don't expect most people to want to make spreadsheets to play games. Uh there's at least for me it's like uh yeah i think when we're making learning games we want the intrinsic motivation model to be something that ideally celebrates the learning content and that oh, does mean that our game can be in fact authentically awful for people who really just fundamentally don't 
have a passion for that type of information or mastery. And I think that's okay. Uh, I think I would rather make games that let people find what's great about their ability to enjoy a certain type of practice than mm-hmm. that a game that that keeps someone sufficiently bribed to participate in something that they ultimately don't don't care for. I mean, that's a really good point that I think about a lot, you know, with our game Roboco. Um, you know, we talk about it as a way to give people access to the world of robotics. But mm-hmm. I do think of it, I don't think of it as a way to get everyone interested or excited about robotics. I think of it as a way to filter for the people who love robotics, right? Because yeah. if you don't love the process of robotics and there's nothing about it that's appealing to you, that game will eventually repel you. Like it's, mm. <laughs> it's, it's sort of designed to, because it's designed to go deeper and deeper into the world of robotics. Right. Yes. Um, so the more you hate that, the less appealing the game gets over time. Yeah. Um, and so, but I think that's like a really interesting and important thing to re- re- remember with any game that's intended to set people up for their futures. Like there's a, an infinity of options with what you can do with the human life. And I think a lot of what we can like, helping people find their interests and also disqualify interests. Those are sometimes equally important. Well, I think also that there's a difference between skill and subject matter um, in the sense that you can enjoy, you can find joy in the skill and despise the subject matter. Um, I think for speaking personally, I thought that when I was, I was terrible at chemistry in high school. Oh my goodness. But balancing equations on either side of the, the like, Hey, a chemical process of heat happens and then it turns into this. I can't remember what that's called in the middle. Cause I, that was sophomore year and I hated chemistry. That, <laughs> that was very satisfying. Yeah. I cannot stand chemistry and I didn't understand the math and I was really bad at it. But something about the, hey, here are all the parts and here are all the parts again, but rearranged. Yeah. That was satisfying to me. And that was a skill that I could latch on to and that I understood a little bit more about the world in the sense that things are not created or destroyed. They're Mm -hmm. rearranged. It's like you're leaving a a little perfect universe in your wake every time you solve one. You're like, and done. Yeah, I think that yeah. I think that is if you can if you can have distinct and 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 pure innate joy and spark that in someone even if they don't like the subject matter you've still accomplished the point of the game. Mm-hmm. And I think and one step down from that further is if you teach them a skill that they'll discover later on and realize, "Oh wait a second. I know this." So, algebra I'm also, I was a humanities major. Can you tell? Um, <laughs> I, I like science, I promise. Uh, but algebra, certain things um, in algebra were very difficult for me, but I, I did like, uh, I thought, you know, the solving and the balancing of, of equations was satisfying. Later on in life, ended up having to use algebra a fair bit in sewing and knitting because you have to figure out how big you're going to make something when you have to figure out figure out how many yards of fabric you need or how many uh, skeins of yarn or what the dimensions are going to be i had to google this formula for an ellipse at one point but that i never thought i would have to do 
because at that point in my life, I was entering college and I figured, eh, I'm not going to be a STEM major. What do you know? The summer before college, I needed to Google the formula for an ellipse and figure out how big to make it and do some algebra. Well, um, I think, you know, that probably ties it off for our discussion of uh, Jumpstart Grade 3 Mystery Mountain. Is it Magic Mountain or Mystery Mountain? Am I getting Mystery that wrong? Mountain. Mystery Mountain. Mystery okay, Mountain. good. I, you know, I think I was confusing that with uh, a deception from my childhood when a, a friend's mom wanted to get me to eat uh, meatloaf. And she told me that she was making uh. Taco Mountain for dinner. And we were like really excited for Taco Mountain. Right, because oh, it sounded no. cool, and then her her husband got home from work and was like, "Oh, hey, meatloaf!" Oh, <laughs> oh God. And utterly sold her out. Um, shout out to Ann Schultz and her attempt. <laughs> at, oh yeah, Ann at, at creating a taco mountain that would you know. Was she gonna like carve the meatloaf into like volcano shapes? I don't think so. <laughs> Oh, that would have been really cool. It was, you know, it was just branding, which, you know, as a, as a marketing professional, I respect, honestly. Is that when you learned that marketing was the thing Yeah, that was the moment, exactly. When I was lied to about meatloaf, I was like, you know what? (laughs) (laughs) That's the rest of my life right there. (laughs) Oh, what is that? uh, Like you could have, um, oh, what's that? What's that like a ashy flow that comes from volcanoes? Oh, pyroclastic flow. Yes, you could have that be mashed potatoes around the volcano and have ketchup and gravy or whatever you put it on coming from the top. She could have done so much. Man, and this, once again, you know, talking about cross-cutting understandings, (laughs) bringing the culinary worlds together with geology um, at long last. all right. Well, um, I think that that basically concludes our discussion. Um, so thank you again, Lydia, for uh, coming today. And yeah, thanks everybody for listening. We'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Filament Games podcast. If you like to hear more about games, game-based learning, and what's happening at our studio, subscribe today on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to visit us at our website, filamentgames.com.